know God's will for your life? Let's give you exactly what you want, when you want it, and how you want it. Okay? What I want you all to do is start just telling God what you want, claim it, and then you'll receive it. If you want a billion dollars, you know why you don't have a billion dollars? You didn't ask for it, right? You all like the sounds of that, don't you? It's just not true. God's will for your life is not to give you whatever you tell him you want, whatever you think you want, whenever you want it, and however you want it. That's frustrating, isn't it? You know when you're a little kid and you find out your parents aren't going to always do what you want them to do? You're like, oh, praise you, God. Thank you for my parents putting, putting hedges around me for my protection. No, we yell from little kids, I want a cookie. And your mom and dad say, no, here's two cookies. You know, they say, no cookies. Well, God's will for your life is not to give you everything you want. It's your sanctification, 1 Thessalonians 4.3. His will for your life is to draw you closer to him, to make you more dependent on him, to give you the joy that comes from living with him, and to equip you to proclaim his gospel. You want to make it real simple? His goal for your life, what he will carry out in the life of his child, is increasing our love for him and our love for one another. That's not always our will for ourselves, is it? And thus the rub. Look at what the author of Hebrews is saying here. He's not saying that God just wants to make you happy and give you a pleasant, enjoyable, smooth, comfortable life. Now, he does some of that along the way. Let's not, let's not think of God as a cruel taskmaster. But God's greatest concern isn't blessing you with abundant whatever that you want. It's giving you abundant life more fully. And what I see here in this first uh, few verses is God acting as a father. Do you notice as we get into this, the references to endurance, perseverance, faint-heartedness. You ever go through life and feel that way? Life is hard. Life wears me out. Life is difficult. It's just, it's a grind. It's exhausting. You know, God's no fool. He says, I know. And as my children, let me help you out. Here's how you persevere. Here's how you don't grow weary of doing good. Here's how you continue to fight the good fight. God doesn't call this the, uh, you know, the good vacation. Relax on the beach on the good vacation on your way to heaven. No, Paul says, Fight the good fight. We live in the midst of a, a battle. We're going to talk about that in a couple weeks. We live in the midst of a spiritual battle day in and day out. Too often we forget it. But God says, here, here's how we deal with this. Don't grow weary. Don't become faint-hearted in the struggle that you have. Don't grow weary. Endure. And he tells us that one of the ways we do this is understanding we're sons. God's our father. You know what fathers do? And mothers they discipline their kids. Have you ever met a parent, or what would you think of a parent, who never disciplined their kids? There are actually a lot of them out there nowadays, I'm finding. What do you think when you see a, a child who's not been disciplined? You know, you're like, well, this, this kid is messed up and going to be real messed up as they, they go down the road of life. Or a parent who's, you know, my goal in life is to encourage my children and just give them whatever they want and build up their self-esteem and, and just, you know, Help them to grow and find who they are. Oh, gag me with a spoon. A loving parent has to discipline their child. Now, no loving parent gets great pleasure out of disciplining their kids. Oh, get over here. It's on now. Discipline time. But what, what is the motive behind proper parental discipline? Not worldly discipline. You know, a worldly parent, apart from Christ, really has no concept of what they're doing when they're disciplining their kid. They're simply trying to exert their desire upon the children. I got in lots of trouble with this as a teenager. I would, I would encourage, you know, 
Don't, don't mess with this and, and, and don't lead your kids in this way. I used to ask my parents, well, why? What, what's the goal? Yeah. Well, you can't go there. Okay, but why? Well, because I don't think it's right. Ah, but what if I think it is right? Well, you know, it would boil down to this. Well, I'm in charge here and you're going to do what I say. Okay, but when I leave, like, what am I getting out of this? There's not a lot. But so, so for the Christian parent, what is the goal in disciplining your child? Is it just, sometimes it defaults to this, unfortunately. Is it just to exert your moral will? I don't want you doing that. And as long as you live in this house, you're not going to do that. It shouldn't be, should it? The goal is always, should always be, to bring the gospel front and center. To, to help the child understand the effect of sin on the flesh. To help the child understand the role that Christ plays in the life of the believer, salvation. And to call the child to repent of any age, from, from real little to real old. That is the proper goal of disciplining a child. So you take a little kid, and they, they make a bad choice, and when they're real little, sit on the stairs. It's traumatic. Ah! You need to sit on the stairs, and then we go over and we have a talk. The reason you're sitting on the stairs is you made a bad choice. And it's really sad that you made a bad choice. And these are choices that we make that are displeasing to God. And because of these bad choices, you know, we can't live with God. But I'm real thankful that Jesus came and he took the punishment that we deserve. And I hope that God works in your heart to soften your heart so that you desire not to do that anymore. So you say to a little kid, you don't know of anything sinking in. Then they get a little older. And without being politically incorrect, maybe they go from the seat to a, to a, a loving spank, you know? Oh! And you can unpack it a little more. You take no delight in telling your little kid to sit on the stairs. You take no delight in giving a spank. They get older, you, you ground them. They get older than that, and then you're running out of time, and you start to panic. Here's where you trust that God's wise. But all along the lines, you're trying to bring the gospel front and center. And the basis of that discipline is love. It's not control, it's love. It's desire for that child to know who God is, to know of God's love for them, and to understand why God gives us his commands. That's where we're going next week, by the way, as we look at righteousness, the role of, of God's law and God's commands. Well, what do kids usually say when parents discipline them? They say things like, it's not fair, right? Is that what you just said? It's not fair. It's taking too long. Or if you loved me, you wouldn't do this, right? Now, here's a kicker, grown-ups. Do we ever say that in our heads? God, God this isn't fair. You know, I'm paying my taxes on time, and I'm working on the up and up, and my partner's making a killing, and he's lying and cheating and stealing. This isn't fair, right? Or, God, God, I understand, but this is just taking way too long. You know, the little kid version is, can I get up now? The grown-up version is, this is taking way too long, God. If you know what you're doing, you've got to speed this up. Or we get the, if you really love me, God, you wouldn't allow this to happen. That one's probably the most common one. You know, difficulties, trials, horrible situations. God, if you love me, why would you allow this to happen? As we age, we realize our parents had some wisdom in what they were doing, don't we? We see ourselves doing the same thing, but our parents had some wisdom, at least a little bit. And we understood that while they may have been screwing it up, they were trying their best based on what they had. Well, look at verse 10 here. This is such an encouraging verse here. It says, For they, speaking of, of earthly parents, disciplined us for a short time 
as it seemed best to them. But he, God, disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. Do you see that? Our worldly parents, earthly parents, disciplined us in the way they thought was best. God disciplines us in the way he knows is best in his perfect wisdom. So as we go through life, and we will run into difficulties and trials and tribulations, which is why Jesus says, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. When we start to hear ourselves saying things like, it's not fair, it's taking too long, if you loved me, you wouldn't, as maturing Christians, we can rejoice and step back and say, okay, you do know what you're doing. I don't know what you're doing. I do know that you love me perfectly. I do know that you sent your... If you sent your son, Father, to die on the cross on my behalf, are you really going to destroy me now or try to harm me? Or can I bank on the promise in Jeremiah that, that you have a goal and a plan for our lives? Right? Do you see that? So our job, like with a little kid, often we have to say to the little kid, one day when you're older, you'll understand why I did this. Right? And then we hope that they get older and we made the right choice and that they understand. But with God, it's foolproof. As we mature, the difference is a little kid matures by time. Christians don't mature by time. We mature by a combination of things that we'll look at in a minute. But as we mature in our faith, we start to see that God knows what he's saying and we start to rejoice in the fact that he's in control of all things and perfectly wise. Do you see that? So one of the things you need to realize is God is a father. And this word discipline comes from the Greek word padea. It means raise, nurture, or care for a child. What an encouragement for us as believers. God, it works in our lives to raise, nurture, and encourage us as his children in perfect wisdom. So you start to think, you ever ask the question, if you could go back in time and do your life differently, what would you do differently? Do you want to know the joyful response we have as Christians? wouldn't change a thing. That doesn't mean like I, I want to commit every sin I committed along the way, but we have the joy of knowing that a perfect, loving, heavenly Father wisely guides us, cares for us, and directs us. Now, don't get me wrong here. I think too often we view God as that, that pushover parent, you know, because we have this time issue and, and when he's going to discipline us. When you're a little kid and you smack a sibling, you usually get quick discipline. Could you imagine if, if you could smack your sibling and then you got like months before it was brought up? Like, oh, I'm getting away with this. Whack, whack, whack. Well, sometimes I think we don't realize that God will discipline us. We think we can sin freely. You know, God's not going to, quote, unquote, punish us for our sin because Jesus took the punishment for our sin. But as our Father, he loves us and he will discipline us so that we will desire to not sin. And the point in the passage is, if you can go on joyfully sinning, and nothing seems to happen about it, you might want to step back and say, wait a minute, maybe I'm an illegitimate kid. You see that? So he's a loving father. He's also a trainer. Verse 11. Another thing kids say is, it's too hard. You ever get that one? It's too hard. I can't do it. Well, here's what it says in, in verse 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The point of discipline is to exert small amounts of pain to prevent larger amounts of pain in the future, right? A trainer, like, you know, like at the gym, one of those trainers. Anyone here ever lift weights? 
before kids and before being a pastor, I used to thoroughly enjoy lifting weights. Back in the days of college and, and post-college and athletics, I could spend hours at the gym, and I loved it. I grew up in, in, in middle school. I was called 6 o'clock. You know why I ever look at the clock at 6? My shoulders, hips, and, and ankles were all just straight up and down, and, and my arms, I was a, I was a skinny beanpole. So I started lifting weights when, when I was, I don't know, 14, 15 in my parents' basement. I had an easy curl bar, and I remember one day the day I got I sat down there. I must have done 500 curls. And I woke up the next morning. I come out of my room. I had my thumbs hooked in my belt. My mom's like, what are you doing? I was like, I can't move them. They hurt so bad. I couldn't get them straight for a couple days. But the sick thing is I liked it. Do you know why? It meant something was growing in there. At least that's what I told myself. And as I continued to get more and more involved in weightlifting, one of the things I loved about it was when you would wake up the next morning after a great workout, you were just so sore. I mean, you sleep all night and you wake up and you just feel your chest like it was going to rip apart. Your muscles were so, oh, I felt so great. And and then you reach up to stretch, and your triceps would just, oh, like they're going to rip off the bone. It was the most wonderful feeling. And the reason it was wonderful was that pain meant muscle was growing. That, that's what weightlifting does. It actually slightly tears your muscle, which regrows stronger behind it. So what you realize is, what I was realizing was that pain was evidence of a muscle being worked and injured to grow stronger. Well, in our lives as Christians often, far less pleasant, though maybe sadistic people have issues here, we go through times of pain. We are given things that we think are too hard, and they cause us to be highly uncomfortable. But understand that God, a perfectly wise father, knows what he's doing. He's strengthening us. Do you ever think of that? One of my favorite Bible verses is a... God will never give you more than you can handle. It's right after God helps those who help themselves. You guys want to look those up for me? Do you know one of my primary objections when I was a non-believer was the verse that God helps those who help themselves? What an idiot I must have looked like. I would say to people, how could you believe the Bible? It says God helps those who help themselves. What a combat. That just means he's getting credit for your work. I can't believe that. No one ever told me it's not in there. That's even more pathetic. Well, God, God helped get rid of that. It's actually from, uh, who's the guy who wrote Poor Richard's Almanac? Yes, Ben Franklin quote. But God, God will never give you more than you can handle. You want to know a dirty little secret? He'll give you a whole lot more than you can handle. So when you're saying it's too hard, the problem is you're trying to do it on your own. God will never give you more than you can handle when you depend on his strength, but on your own strength, yeah, you'll be miserable if you believe that. When we go through life, we need to understand we will have difficulties, we will have painful situations, but they're allowed under the sovereign control of a perfectly wise God. James 1, 2 through 4, you know that verse? Consider pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of any kind, because you know the testing of your faith develops perseverance. See, God's giving us, we often don't, don't be careful with this, God, I, I would like to pray that, that you would give us patience. Because what we think he's going to do is prove patience. Mm -mm. He's going he's to train you to develop patience. You know? God, I, I pray, careful with this, Renee. I pray for focus. Careful, careful, because he may 
train you and discipline you to give you focus. Yeah? That, that should be what we want. Again, that's where we're going next week. I'm gonna, next week, I'm going to address a, a myth that messes up more Christians than, than you would believe. And I'm sure to a degree it impacts each and every one of us. But God, in his perfect wisdom, one of the things we need to be aware of, is not just that he disciplines us as a loving father, but he trains us as a spiritual gym coach, per se. He's going to inflict small amounts of pain upon us to allow us to grow in our faith, to mature. There's one other thing here. Healer. Look down here at the uh, verse 12 and 13. Hebrews 11 is not the same as Hebrews 12, in case everyone ever wondered about that. There we go. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Look at it. Lift drooping hands, strengthen weak knees, put lame back in joint. What God is doing in our lives through his wisdom is taking what is weak and messed up and making it strong. How is God doing this? Isn't that great that he tells us? It's a combination of maturing and strengthening with enduring. Now, I was brought up in an environment where, as a male, one of the things you want to always feel is, is dangerous. You want to feel that you're the strongest person in a crowd, that you're the most dangerous person in the crowd. And as you get older, in my family, you know, grandparents, great-grandparents, one of the difficulties they had was when they felt that they were not as dangerous, physically speaking. I mean, screwed up environment I grew up in, but I think there's a part of that in each and every one of us. We have pride. We want to be recognized. We want to be powerful, don't we? And one of the things that we have to realize is we're really not strong at all. We're really quite pathetically weak. We want to exert our will. But we have no ability to do that, do we? We don't even have the ability to get up out of bed and draw breath. So God says here, as Allah, his wisdom is being carried out as a loving father and disciplining his children, as a trainer and strengthening his children, and then as a healer, working to put all this stuff together. And it made me go over to 2 Corinthians 12. 2 Corinthians 12 has to do with Paul's thorn in the flesh. Do you know about that? I'll read it to you. Paul is uh, unpacking. We're going to go into, actually, I'm pretty set on this. After we finish the attribute series, we're going to go into 1 Corinthians, take a trip through 1 Corinthians. It is a frighteningly um, relevant, I hate using that term. The book is so spot on with the environment that we live in culturally and the impacts it has on the, the lives of believers that, that is, for some reason, I just feel that, that God's leading me that way, and I'm excited to go through that. But what we're seeing here is Paul is unpacking his credentials in light of these super apostles that the Corinthians start to follow, these great orators and, and men of skill and apparent wisdom who could draw a crowd. And Paul's unpacking his credentials saying, look, you guys are calling me weak and, and worthless and a, and a wuss. Check this out. I, I've been shipwrecked and beaten and yada, yada, yada. And then he says, starting in verse 7, look at this. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations that he received, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, 
my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That sounds horrible to a prideful, arrogant guy like me. When I'm weak, then I'm strong. No, no, no. When I lift weights and can bench press 400 pounds and I frighten and intimidate people, then I'm strong. See, but that's part of God's wisdom. God's wisdom is upside down in the eyes of the world. God takes what the world considers foolishness and shows it to be true wisdom. The thought of the stumbling block to the Jews, to even to the Gentiles, of a, a crucified Savior. I mean, really? The world's... That's a joke, right? But you see the wisdom of God on display in that, being just and the justifier. Paul, Paul was a brilliant mind. Paul was someone who was set to do great things in the eyes of the world. And look what God did. He sent this guy, as a believer, a thorn in the flesh. We don't know what it was. There's all sorts of speculation, and it's really irrelevant. It was almost certainly some kind of physical affliction that was used to keep Paul humble, and from becoming conceited, to remind him, hey, Paulio, you're kind of weak, don't forget. You know what, he, he had a humility issue like we all do. But God works as a healer. And as a healer, he works to, to put what's lame back into joint by showing us just how weak we really are. Do you see that? That's how God works in our lives. He loves us, he disciplines us, he trains us, and in all these things, he works to show us that we were made to live in total and complete dependence upon him. Do you know how hard this is for 21st century Americans? It's almost impossible. Jesus says, it's harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And we start to think as, these, as Americans, well, I'm middle class. Jesus, who is he speaking to? An agrarian culture. You look at this in a global context because Jesus didn't just give his word for you know, 21st century Americans on the East Coast. And you start to think about who's rich? Uh-oh. We have so many things that allow us to think we're in control. I can, I can actually have to reach down there. I can order stuff without moving my feet and it shows up on my door tomorrow if I want it. That, that's a lot of power I have, isn't it? I can make a phone call and with exchange of currency, can make a whole lot of things happen. I can decide to leave here and go to the airport and be halfway around the globe by tonight. That, I, I'm pretty strong and impressive. I can actually exert my will on little people. Did you know that? I, I can use fear and fright and intimidation on small children and get them to cower and do whatever I tell them to. I am strong. God says, no, you're not. And as my child, I love you enough that I'm going to open your eyes to the fact, we'll call this humble you, to realize you're actually quite pathetically weak but that's okay, because I'm the good shepherd. Psalm 23, that was probably Renee's favorite sermon series, because the whole way through, you got the, bah, bah. we're sheep. We're, we're not lions. You know, Jesus doesn't say, I am the shepherd of lions, fire-breathing, ferocious lions. Follow me. That sounds great. He says, I'm the good shepherd. My sheep know my name, and they know my voice, and they follow me. Psalm 23 shows us how pathetic sheep are, right? We keep getting lost. We get cast. Remember we spent a week talking about what it means to be cast? 
You know what I mean? Anybody remember that? When a sheep gets cast, sheep fall over on their sides into these pits. Like they start, they eat, they sit down, and then they bloat out with gas. These are, these are wise animals. And then the bloating causes her, their little, little tiny legs to go up in the air, and they can't get up. So they're laying there bloated. I got gas! Ah! And the good shepherd comes along. And think about how wonderful this task is. He reaches under, lifts them up, and then he helps them get going as they're breaking wind all along. You know? yeah, that, that's disgusting. <laughs> that's what Jesus is telling us. Guys, you're not that strong. You get killed over with gas. But I love you, and I'm going to pick you up, and I'm going to walk alongside you. And do you know what our job is? We look back at the good shepherd and go, why would God come down and dwell along us to walk in our gas? That, that's incredible love, isn't it? it? It's unbelievable love. So what's our job? It's not to take gas sex and try to make it smell better. It's to rejoice in the fact that he loves us, that he restores us, and that to, he guides us so we don't keep flopping over and getting bloated. We're so pathetic, we keep ending up cast because we don't believe he's truly wise. Well, guys... We're all dumb sheep. We need a good shepherd. We need to walk in a herd because sheep that get out by themselves, they get attacked. But he loves us. He's never going to lose any of his sheep, right? God's will works to protect us from evil, to draw us closer to himself, to help us love him, love one another, and proclaim his gospel. And we can kick and scream and fight it all we like, but daddy always gets his way. We have a, a coffee cup at home, which always, always irritates my middle son because he's way too much like me says, rule number one, mommy is always right. Rule number two, if mommy is wrong, see rule number one. And every time this cup shows up, somebody says, that's not true. Mommy's not always right. And why should we go see rule number one if mommy's really wrong? Well, if God had a coffee cup, it could read, rule number one, God is always right. Rule number two, change the wording, if you think God is wrong, See rule number one. Guys, that, that's how we're called to live. And do you understand the joy that comes in that? What's hard for us as Christians is too often we try to force it and fake it without knowing what's going on. We go, okay, God's wise, but I have no clue what he's doing. So I'm just going to try to get through life, and I'm miserable, but I'll fake it and smile a lot so people think being a Christian is wonderful. And then you've got to use your Christianese vocabulary. You know, whenever you see, how's it going? Oh, it's such a blessing. Inside, we're thinking miserable. But we go, such a blessing. How are your kids? Oh, wonderful. They're all geniuses. Yeah, and inside, we're just crying like, oh, I'm lonely and friendless and lost with what's going on around me. And I don't know what God's up to, but if I ask, you're going to think I'm all messed up and I might not even be a Christian. And they're thinking the same thing. Well, guys, what we need to understand is what God says in his word. This stuff is for the kids and for the grown-ups. We all know as Christians who God is. What a wonderful gift that God not only tells us that he's all wise, but he shows us his wisdom in action. Do you see that? You say, God, God what should I do in this situation? He says, well, God, I can't see. You say, well, I'll tell you what to do. Well, how do I know if it's true? Because I'm trustworthy. Well, how do I know you can make it happen? I'm omnipotent and omniscient. How do I know you know what you're doing? Because I'm all wise. Well, do you really love me? Well, do I really love you? Didn't I show you that when I sent my son to die on the cross in your place? 
while, while you were a dirty, rotten, good-for-nothing sinner who had nothing to offer me but filthy rags, did I not come and dwell among you and take, take the, the wrath you deserved upon myself and put my righteousness upon you? Do I love you? Come on. So even though you can't see, here's what you should do. Do you know what's behind the black? The secret things. But we get to trust God and walk in joyful obedience. I love having kids of different ages. I love the three-year-old. He has, some, he has some good old blind faith in his daddy. You know, if I told him, jump on the grill, buddy, he's going to climb up and jump on that grill and burn himself because daddy said so. I tell an 11-year-old to jump on the grill, he's going to look at me like I lost my mind. Wouldn't that happen to us too? But we're older than that. We're, we're adults. We know so much better than God. Do you really? What I want you to get out of this, guys, is God is, in fact, perfectly, completely, and totally wise. We've looked at a variety of attributes. We've looked at the fact that God's knowable. God's chosen to make himself known. The only reason we know God is because he chose to reveal himself to us. We've looked at the fact that God is supreme. He's above and over all. He, he's jealous. He's holy. He's just. He's trustworthy. He's loving. He's all-powerful. And he's perfectly wise. And these aren't just some, some little intellectual facts to pack into your brain to then just know. These are truths that equip us to live life well. God desires that we may have life and have it abundantly as believers. He desires, he says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and give thanks in all circumstances. He's not joking, but we struggle with knowing how because we forget that he's all wise. It drives me batty sometimes when people say, God is good. I go, boy, is this some new revelation to you? It usually comes from, you know, well, I just came into a windfall of cash. God is good. We just got half off on a brand new air conditioning unit. God is good. You really get this one. My kid just flunked out of school. God is good. My wife left me. God is good. But you know what? It's the same God working wisely in control of all things. And that's what we need to remember. God is good. God is loving. God is perfect. God is true. And God is wise. Our job is to joyfully trust daddy to allow daddy to strengthen us and to rejoice as daddy reminds us that we are weak. But when we are weak, then we're strong. You see, I'm not really that dangerous of a person. But I have a very dangerous daddy who loves me, who will protect me, who will never leave me nor forsake me. So what do I have to be afraid of? What, what do we have as believers to be frightened of? Can I tell you? The only thing that's scary is not trusting daddy. But when you walk in the will of God, you are perfectly cared for. You'll mature perfectly and you will have the joy that God desires for you. And not only that, don't let us stop with the selfish focus. We bring glory to God and our witness to a lost world. See, it's one thing to tell somebody God is loving and trustworthy and wise. And then to not walk like you believe it. But you tell them and you walk like you believe it, and they look at you like you're kind of screwy, one day they might ask, what is this reason for the hope that you have? See, and then we get to be prepared to give them that reason, because God might work to draw people to himself through us. A loving, just, holy, trustworthy, powerful, and wise Father. Let's pray.
Father, I just first and foremost confess the fact that, that I, and I am sure we, all fail to consider you perfectly wise at all times. I pray that you would forgive us. I pray that you would encourage, empower, and remind us of the fact that you are exactly who you say you are, that we live in a world that will distract us from you. The evil one is real and will try to deceive us, to try to convince us, as he did Eve, that surely you will not die. Surely God did not mean what he said. He will tell us things like, surely God is not wise. Surely God doesn't really love you, because if he did, he wouldn't do that. Father, please protect us from the evil one. Please fill our ears with your truth. Please plant it deeply in our heart. Please allow us to store up your word in our hearts so we might not sin against you. And Father, I just ask you to encourage us and help us understand that we are weak sheep, but you are a loving and powerful shepherd, that you will never leave us nor forsake us. Holy Spirit, I pray that you work in us to give us a desire to walk in greater obedience so we can have the joy you desire for us, so that we can bring glory to you in full measure, and so that we might be a light that shines in this dark world, proclaiming a God who loves, a God who is wise and a God who will one day return to judge all the earth. I pray that we might see many come to know you, Lord God. I pray that we might walk faithfully before you. And I just thank you that all these things happen by grace through faith and not our own strength. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.